This is HEC Media. The views and opinions expressed in the following program do not reflect the views or opinions of HEC or this station. We have singers and travelers and taxes. We have weddings and picnics and funerals. Hi, I'm Bob Wilcox. And I'm Jerry Kowarski. Come with us to the theater and we'll tell you what we've seen from our two seats on the aisle. Welcome to Two on the Aisle, the podcast, produced by HEC Media in St. Louis, Missouri. Two on the Aisle, the podcast, is an audio version of the televised and webcast program produced every two weeks that features a review of theater and opera productions around the St. Louis area, along with a calendar of theater due to play around the region. The regular hosts of the program, Bob Wilcox and Jerry Kowarski, have been hosting and reviewing all over town for more than 25 years on local cable and more recently on the internet. This podcast is from episode number 528 of the program, originally broadcast on Thursday, May 23rd, 2019, and features reviews of the following plays. Nina Simone, Four Women, at the Black Rep, Come From Away, at the Fox Theater, I Now Pronounce, at the New Jewish Theater, A Lovely Sunday for Creve Corps, The Night of the Iguana, and Dear Mr. Williams, at the Tennessee Williams Festival St. Louis, Death Tax, at Mustard Seed Theater, Exit Laughing at the Alpha Players, and Smoke on the Mountain at KTK Productions. Now to start our reviews for this episode, here's Bob Wilcox. The time is September 16, 1963. The place is the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham, Alabama. Christina Hamm has set her play Nina Simone, Four Women, at this time and place. On the stage at Washington University's Edison Theater, Tim Jones's set for the Black Rep production shows a church in ruins. September 16, 1963 was the day after the Ku Klux Klan set off a bomb on Sunday morning in this church, which was a gathering place for Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and those working with him to bring the civil rights movement to Birmingham. The bomb killed four girls in their Sunday school class. The great jazz singer and songwriter Nina Simone has come here, in Ham's play, if not in fact, to write words and music that will mark her clearly as a participant in the struggle, not just an artist, but an artist activist. A magnificent grand piano has survived the bombing, just as the music it plays cannot be destroyed by force. Simone's accompanist has come with her. Together, they're working out the new activist song. A middle-aged woman in a housekeeper's dress joins them. The demonstrations in the streets have blocked her way from her home to the white section where she works, and she has taken refuge in what's left of her church. She finds comfort in singing the church's music, God be with you till we meet again, and his eyes on the sparrow. Nina joins her. As Leah Stewart is playing Nina Simone, Denise Times is playing the housekeeper, Sarah, and Charles Kreth is on the piano, the music is glorious. So is the acting. Times has had to stage an audience in her grip before, and I'm happy to see her doing it again. Much like Simone's build, Stewart does not try to imitate her singing, but in her own way sounds the depths and heights that Simone does, both singing and acting. A young woman, light-skinned, white father who raped black mother, takes a break from the demonstration in the street. She's working for Dr. King. Playing Sophonia, Alex J. makes clear that she disagrees with the reluctance of Sarah to push hard for change and wants to know what a mere entertainer like Nina Simone is doing here. Sophonia is pursued by a romantic rival with a knife. 
Both Camille Sharp in her performance and Nikki Glaros in the costume she's given Sweet Thing make it clear that Sweet Thing practices the oldest profession. But the four unite in Simone's homage to Lorraine Hansberry to be young, gifted, and black, each recognizing in it what she is, might have been, and might be. And as Simone now has finished that activist song she's been birthing, the others back her on Mississippi Goddamn, and finally, a song for women about them and also an homage to the four Sunday school girls. Ham's play is loosely jointed to allow for the moving music and stories. Ron Heim's direction keeps it together. The cast performances keep us alert. Sean Savoy's lights mark the women's interior moments. Sound designer Justin Smith's ear-shattering explosions remind us of the dangers surrounding us. Heather Beale provided spirit-moved choreography, and Eric Kuhn guided the romantic rival's fight. Even without Simone's music, Nina Simone for Women offers more than first meets the eye. Absolutely, and uh, as, as always, a, a show with music at the Black Rep is one of the surest bets in town. Let's hear some of the music. My skin is black. All right. My The opening number of the wonderful new musical, Come From Away, tells us almost everything we need to know about the inhabitants of Gander, Newfoundland. The contagious energy of the Celtic-style music leaves no doubt that these people have enormous reserves of strength and optimism. These qualities are tested on stage by the events of the day on which the musical begins, September 11, 2001. After the attacks on the World Trade Center and the Pentagon, U.S. airspace was shut down. 38 planes from Europe were diverted to Gander. Its population of about 10,000 was suddenly increased by two-thirds by people who, in the local idiom, had come from away. Nearly 6,600 passengers and crew members had to be housed and fed until American airspace reopened, and no one knew when that would be. The show is based on interviews conducted at a reunion 10 years after the events of 9-11. The stories in the show have the ring of truth because they have been taken from life. In some cases, the creative team combined characters so more stories could be told. Several composite characters have the first name of one real person and the last name of another. Canadian husband and wife team Irene Sankoff and David Hine work together on all three elements of the show, book, music, and lyrics. The completeness of the collaboration may be why the story advances with such remarkable swiftness, unity, and power. The characters shift seamlessly from addressing the audience to addressing one another to choreographed ensembles, all under the direction of Christopher Ashley, the musical staging by Kelly Devine, and the music supervision of Ian Eisendrath. 
the dramatic clarity and emotional impact of the narrative never have a chance to flag. An extraordinary cast of 12 plays all the roles, making them all distinct enough to be instantly recognizable when they return to the spotlight. The cast is greatly helped by the flexibility in Beowulf Borat's scenic design, Tom Wesley James' costumes, Howe Brinkley's lighting, and Garth Owens' sound. Come From Away is a great story, superbly told. True. I, 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 you know, I had great doubts going in. How are you going to make a musical out of this story, those people gathering there? But they did, and it's uh, quite enjoyable. And it was interesting score because there are not a lot of individual songs in it, but a continuing, pretty, uh, as you say, uh, drawing on what is obviously a lot of the music of that area of Canada, which has uh, Celtic roots in it. So let's hear some of the music. The phrase I now pronounce must be used in several civil and religious ceremonies, but any time I hear it, I think of only one. As the title of the current production at the New Jewish Theater, I now pronounce rightly indicates that this is a play about a wedding, an unusual wedding. The rabbi welcomes us and begins the ceremony, but he's confused, repeats himself, gropes for words, and then collapses, taking the chuppah down with him. Finally, we meet the wedding party. A prenuptial reception continues offstage while those in the wedding party try to figure out what to do. David Blake's institutional design allows the stage before us to be several rooms, depending on the furnishings. In one, a bridesmaid, Eva, and a groomsman, Seth, meet. Eva fears her looks mean she will always be a bridesmaid, and Seth is separated from his wife and maybe divorcing or maybe not. But he likes Eva's looks just fine. Frankie Ferrari as Eva is taller than Ryan Lawson Maskey as Seth. This does not slow them down but does lead them and director Edward Caulfield to some amusing embraces. Michelle is another unhappy bridesmaid who is making frequent visits to the libations in the next room. She, however, generates no interest from groomsman Dave, a thorough cynic where romance and marriage are concerned. Delaney Piggins makes a sadly appealing Michelle. Will Bonfilio finds moments for his abundant comic skills, even as Dave the Grouch. When the bride and groom finally show up, Jessica Kaddish's angry and frustrated Nicole turns into Bridezilla. Graham Emmons' Adam the Groom mostly finds himself at a loss. Finally, an online ordination supplies, if not a happy ending, at least a legal wedding. The rabbi's widow, played in drag by Craig Newman, who had played the rabbi, arrives to collect his corpse and bless the couple. The brightest spots in the show were the three flower girls. Lydia Mae Foss, the tallest and, of course, the most important. Millie Edelman, the shortest and, of course, the cutest. And Abby Goldstein, who graciously tolerated her companions. Michelle Seiler's costumes contribute to the festivities, as do Tony Anselmo's lights, Amanda Ware's sound, and Amber Frannick's choreography. I now pronounce is a strange piece. I enjoyed some funny and clever moments and the performances, but I had trouble pulling the whole thing together. Uh, you and I feel exactly the same way. Okay. 
You can follow all things Two on the Isle on Facebook by searching for Two on the Isle and liking the page. And you can be the first to see reviews on YouTube by subscribing to the Two on the Isle channel and checking the notification bell. Again, you can find us on Facebook and YouTube by searching for Two on the Isle. If I were a creative executive at Netflix and Tennessee Williams' A Lovely Sunday for Crevcore were the pilot for a series, I would greenlight a full season and immediately hire the entire cast and crew of the just-completed production by Tennessee Williams Festival St. Louis. If I am overvaluing the play, it's because the production was so delightful and moving. The play is set in the west end of St. Louis in the mid to late 1930s in an unprepossessing efficiency apartment shared by Bodie and Dorothea. It's near Blewett High School, where the marginally youthful Dorothea teaches. She's thinking of moving out, however, because she wants a nicer place to entertain the school's principal, to whom she has given herself and on whom she is betting her future. Bodie knows that Dorothea is making a mistake. Bodie has seen an announcement of the principal's engagement to someone else in the Sunday Post-Dispatch. She tries to keep that information from Dorothea while encouraging her to join Bodie and her twin brother Buddy on a picnic at Creve Coeur. He has a good job at Anheuser-Busch, but he's far from attractive to Dorothea. Maggie Winninger made the stars in Dorothea eyes shine as brightly as possible as she heads toward disaster. Kelly Weber captured not only Bodie's awkwardness, but also her deeply caring heart, filled with concern for Dorothea as well as Buddy. Julie Layton was a personification of snootiness as the social climbing Helena, another teacher at Blewett who wants Dorothea to help pay the rent for a fashionable apartment. Helena's hat was the pinnacle of Garth Dunbar's fine costume design. Ellie Schwetti found both the humor and the pathos in Miss Gluck, a German immigrant prone to emotional episodes. It was shrewd of casting director Carrie Hawk to have picked performers of the same physical type to play Dorothea, Helena, and Miss Gluck, making it clear that the latter two are possible futures for Dorothea. In addition to drawing vivid characterizations from the totally cohesive ensemble, director Carrie Ely cleverly made the actors aware of the audience a few times to help fit the play into a space not built as a theater, the Grand Hall on the second floor of the Grandel Theater. Alice Strelchin's scenic design used the space shrewdly in creating a place Dorothea would want to move from. David DeRoe's lighting, Kareem Deem's sound, and Lana Dvorak's props helped establish the right atmosphere. The power lines rising above all else were a lovely touch, constantly reminding us of the streetcar ride required in those days to get to Creve Coeur. Yes, and uh, I, I, will, I want to say a few words about this when I'm talking about another Williams play and how good this one was and what a lovely production it was. And I'm so glad that people are rediscovering and, and learning how to do some of his late plays. I thought this one was much better than I did the first time I saw it. Yeah. I'm pleased that the Tennessee Williams Festival St. Louis is doing both Williams' The Night of the Iguana and A Lovely Sunday for Creve Coeur. Iguana was Williams' last Broadway success in 1961. In 1979, A Lovely Sunday was done off-Broadway. Most playwrights begin off-Broadway and move up. 
Williams reversed. He was thought to be washed up, too much booze and drugs, writing strange plays. But A Lovely Sunday is a very good play, quite delightful, as the recent production revealed. Iguana is prime Williams with his southern rhythms, or New England or German as needed, and his poetry of the stage embedded in his dramatic realism, and always the battle of the spirit and the flesh, the Puritan and the hedonist. Williams knew the battle well. He was both. So is his central character in Iguana, the Reverend Lawrence Shannon. He's chosen the ministry as his profession. He hurls such fierce imprecations at the sinners in his church that they lock him out of it and lock him out because he has seduced the teenage daughter of one of the deacons. He had the church for a year. For 10 years, he's been conducting tours all over the world and seducing young women on the tours. He's reduced now to leading a busload of faculty and students from a Texas Baptist women's college on a tour of Mexico and seducing the 16-year-old student on the tour. The split in his nature is destroying him. He's haunted by his spook, and he's leading his tour to his place of refuge, the rundown Hotel Costa Verde on a cliff over the ocean, surrounded by jungle. Here he will find a friend, Maxine Falk, owner of the hotel, widow of Shannon's even better friend, Fred, recently deceased. Maxine is the flesh, offering Shannon refuge, rum cocos to quiet the spook, herself to satisfy other needs, though she is hardly the Lolitas he lusts after. In counterpoint, arrive at the hotel Hannah Jelks and her 97-year-old grandfather, Jonathan Coffin. She is a painter and he is a poet. They support themselves by their art, selling her paintings and his poems to the other guests at the hotels where they stay. They speak for things of the spirit, for human connection not of the flesh. Shannon is the battleground for Maxine and Hannah. Tim O'Sell directed, as always, a clear, intelligent, exciting production at the festival with a near-perfect cast. James Andrew Butts is the tormented priest Shannon. LaVon Byers is the strong, lusty Maxine. Nisi Sturgis as the courageous, insightful Hannah and Harry Weber as the gentlemanly, frail poet. Spencer Sickman as the driver of the bus, Elizabeth Ann Townsend as the fierce, determined leader of the women on the bus, Summer Bear as the girl Shannon seduced, Greg Johnson sent to replace Shannon, and Victor Mendez and Luis Aguilar as Maxine's Mexican hotel staff. And because the Puritan and Williams must always condemn evil, and in 1940, Nazis are the most obvious evil, he lodges in the Casa Verde a German family, father and mother, daughter and son-in-law, singing Nazi anthems and celebrating their shortwave radio's report that the Luftwaffe has set England on fire from London to the Channel. Steve Isom, Teresa Doggett, Channery Kingsford Tangay, and Hannah Lee Eisenbath make them quite jolly and repulsive. Dunsey Dye fills his set with fascinating textures lighted by John Ontiveros, period costumes by Garth Dunbar, and sound design by Ellie Schwetti. The iguana captured by the hotel workers to fatten and eat is set free. Are Hannah and Shannon? <laughs> Good question, but we're very indebted to the festival for letting us see two Williams plays that we don't often get to see. True, and very well done. When politicians want to drum up support for eliminating the tax on estates, they refer to it as a death tax. One political assault on the death tax culminated in an act of Congress that eliminated inheritance taxes entirely in the year 2010, but only in that year. 
The impending return of estate taxes in 2011 meant that heirs of taxable estates in 2010 would inherit much more money if their relatives died before the end of the year. This curious situation is the premise of Lucas Nace's recent play, Death Tax. It's set in a health care facility in late 2010, where a woman named Maxine is convinced that her estranged daughter is paying one of the nurses to ensure Maxine's demise before the end of the year. Nurse Tina strenuously denies she is cahoots with the daughter until Maxine offers to pay the nurse handsomely if Maxine remains healthy until 2011. The money would be a great help to Tina in her legal battle to get her son back from her ex-husband in Haiti. What harm could it do to take money for giving the exact same care she would be giving anyway? The harm begins to take shape when Tina's supervisor, Todd, has to start questioning her about what she has been doing. Todd has feelings for Tina that are not fully returned, and he is torn between doing what's right and doing what's right for him. Even more harm is evident when Maxine's daughter arrives for a visit. She is willing to go to extraordinary lengths to repair her relationship with her mother. That would be wonderful for mother and daughter, but Tina and Todd won't get the money they're counting on if Maxine is convinced she's no longer in danger. Nace's script is a provocative study of how far people will go astray when they are too committed to a course of action to turn back. Mustard Seed Theater's recent production of Death Tax featured excellent performances from the entire cast of four. Janita Perkins as Tina and Reginald Pierre as Todd gave totally believable arcs to their characters' emotional journeys. Kim Furlow captures Maxine's bitterness, and Kristen Strom was deeply moving as the daughter poured her heart out. In addition to facilitating cohesiveness in the ensemble, Bess Moynihan's direction made effective use of the setting established by Jamie Perkins' scenic design, Morgan Fisher's props, Jane Sullivan's costumes, Michael Sullivan's lighting, and Zoe Sullivan's sound. The final scene takes the consequences of the death tax avoidance plot far into the future. Too far to answer all my questions, but interesting nonetheless. Yeah, I was uh, a little disappointed uh, in that and resolving it that way. It didn't satisfy me altogether either. But I must say that Nath, uh, the playwright, uh, seems to be everywhere these days. We just saw his uh, Dollhouse Part Two, and always what he writes is quite fascinating. Yes, indeed. If you're on Twitter and Instagram, you can find us there too. You can follow us on Twitter at Two on the Isle and be among the first to find out about our uploaded reviews to YouTube and any other special news that we have to announce. Plus, on Instagram, you can see some sneak peeks at the shows we've just gotten video for before the next episode when you follow us. Again, follow us on Twitter and Instagram by looking for Two on the Isle. Tennessee Williams spread such a feast before us that a mere two plays cannot make a festival. Therefore, the mistress of the revels, the ever-gracious Carrie Houck, offers us more panel discussions, bus tours, additional performances of various kinds. One such this year was Dear Mr. Williams, an account of a young man discovering both his own gay nature and Tennessee Williams at the same time, and a most serendipitous conjunction it was. Brian Batt has gone on to a successful career as an actor, best 
best known as the agency's art director on Mad Men. Born and bred in New Orleans, he maintains the charm and wit bestowed by that city on its children, and he's found an outlet in his writing. With that southern gift for spinning a story and with an actor's skill in telling it, he's created an entertaining and sometimes moving account of seeing, reading, and being in Williams' plays and finding in them a guide through his adolescent toils, troubles, and confusions. He mixes in apt quotations from Williams, returning to his native drawl for those moments, clearly marking when it is bat and when Williams, without really needing the somewhat distracting dimming of the lights. His occasional reference to a script suggests this work may still be unfolding, but it seems quite complete right now. Yes, and I especially like the Dea Ex Machina ending. <laughs> yes. The Alpha players are concluding their current season with Paul Elliott's exit laughing. The action takes place in Connie Harlan's home outside Birmingham, Alabama. Connie and her friends Leona and Millie are meeting as usual on bridge night, even though the fourth player in their group, their dear friend Mary, has just died after a long illness. But Mary is still a part of the evening. When Millie arrives, she has an urn containing Mary's ashes. Millie broke into the funeral home to steal the urn to keep Mary from being buried on the following day by relatives who never visited Mary in the hospital. Mary did not want to be buried. Her three friends promised to spread her ashes over the most beautiful places they could find. As noble as Millie's motives were, the three women are very conscious of the jeopardy they face because of the stolen remains. They fear the worst when a policeman shows up at their door, but he is not what he seems to be at first. The fine alpha cast delivers well-conceived and executed interpretations of all five characters. Laura Crack makes Connie the most level-headed of the group. She has to be to cope with the anxieties of a 21-year-old daughter whose classmate canceled a date on short notice. Leona's fondness for strong drink and caustic remarks could be off-putting in the wrong hands, but Barbara Langa's hands are the right ones. She designed the costumes as well. Sean Chevalier brings out the humor in Millie's ditziness without ever going over the top. Anyone who has been stood up on a date will recognize and laugh at the mixture of anger and despondency in Peyton Gillum's portrayal of Rachel. Anything more I would say about the policeman would be a spoiler, but Antonio Vaghi is fully equal to all the challenges of the role. Sharon Cotner's direction effectively uses the space on the set she designed herself. Bob Veach did the lighting, Alicia Brooks the props, and Brian Borks did the sound. With its substantial parts for mature women, Exit Laughing is likely to appeal to community theaters for some time to come. Yeah, it's a very light piece, but very well done by that cast, I thought, as you said. Yes, indeed. I'm surprised that Smoke on the Mountain is not done more often. Audiences always enjoy it. It's the one about the Sanders family who on Saturday nights during the Great Depression travel to churches to deliver an evening of music and testifying. Alan Bailey came up with the idea and Connie Ray filled in the words to bring it to life. Mike Craver and Mark Hardwick arranged the music, mostly songs we're familiar with from one place or another. The current staging at KTK Productions encourages you to sing along. Director Joe McC Hannah places the audience at long tables, just as if we were at a church basement covered dish dinner. He's also found more Sanders family members than I've ever encountered before. 
as they were 19 years ago. Kathy Schottel and Chris Brown are the senior Sanders. Melanie Wills and Jay Wilson are their twins. And Jill Browning, the daughter who doesn't sing but signs and beats up on a washboard with a big smile. Eric Fredrickson, with Johnny Cash voice and weathered bearing, is Burl's brother Stanley, recently returned to the family bosom from a stay in prison. Jake Singer's Pastor Oldharp radiates enthusiasm and Bible verses and musical talent himself. As the Frickert sisters, pillars of the church, Diane Burkhardt and Michelle Bezcala, sit in the Amen corner and keep a stern eye on the proceedings. All the Sanders deserve special mention because all perform splendidly under Kathy Doerr's musical direction. But I have time for no more than name and visual recognition. Kathy Doerr, again, Barry McKinnon, Nancy Wilkinson, Lydia Bennett, Joe Bennett, Lauren McKenna, and Frank Petrovic. The set committee created a rural church sanctuary, Marie Moore, very colorful costumes, Chris O'Donovan, the lights, and Joe Moore and Russell Sides, the sound. I enjoyed another visit to Mount Pleasant Baptist Church and those good pickles they make at the town's pickle factory. I did too. Good. Let's hear that music. Here's what's going on in the St. Louis area for theater over the next couple of weeks. We'll start with the dinner theaters. The Dinner Detective at the Hilton St. Louis Frontenac Murder Mystery Dinner Show continues through July 27th. Murder in Mayberry continues at the Lemp Mansion Comedy Mystery Dinner Theater through July 17th. Flaming Saddles continues at the Bissell Mansion Murder Mystery Dinner Theater through July 28th. Come From Away continues at the Fox Theater through May 26th. Nina Simone, Four Women will keep running at the Black Rep through June 2nd. The 2019 Festival of New Plays continues at Tesseract Theater through May 26th. I Now Pronounce continues at the New Jewish Theater through June 2nd. Exit Laughing continues at the Alpha Players through May 26th. And Smoke on the Mountain continues at KTK Productions through May 26th. The Marriage of Figaro runs at the Opera Theater of St. Louis from May 25th through June 29th. Be More Chill runs at New Line Theater from May 30th through June 22nd. Charlie Johnson reads all of Proust at The Midnight Company from May 30th through June 15th. Love's Labor's Lost by Shakespeare Festival St. Louis will run in Forest Park from May 31st through June 23rd. The Boy from Oz will run at Stages St. Louis from May 31st through June 30th. The Dixie Swim Club will run at the Monroe Actors Stage Company in Waterloo, Illinois from May 31st through June 9th. Rigoletto will run at Opera Theater of St. Louis from June 1st through the 30th. Sylvia will be at Stray Dog Theater from June 6th through the 22nd. And the Caper in Aisle 6 will run at Circus Flora in Grand Center from June 6th through June 30th. We'll be watching some of these productions from our two seats on the aisle. And we'll be watching the mail and the email for your thoughts on theater in this program and for items for the calendar. Send them to Two on the Isle, HEC Media, 
3221 McKelvey Road, Bridgeton, Missouri, 63044, or by email to tota at hectv.org. Join us next time on Cable in the Web for opera, Shakespeare, and new plays. We'll see you then. This episode of Two on the Isle was produced by Bob Wilcox, and the associate producer was Jerry Kowarski. HEC media producer is Paul Langdon. Our hosts this week were Jerry Kowarski and Bob Wilcox. Television director is Rick Rebelke. Segment editors and videography by Carrie Marks, Paul Langdon, Ben Smith, and Rod Milam. Audios by Paul Langdon. Associate producers and studio camera operators were Carrie Marks and Ben Smith. Set and lighting were by Paul Langdon, Carrie Marks, and Ben Smith. Our theme music was by Daniel McGowan. HEC technical support is by Jane Ballou. And HEC media assistant producer, social media broadcaster, podcast producer, and podcast host is Rod Milam. Two on the Isle was made possible with the support from the Regional Arts Commission of St. Louis. Don't forget you can find all things Two on the Isle online on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, and Instagram. Just go to each social media platform, search for Two on the Isle, and like, subscribe, and follow us there. Thanks for downloading the Two on the Isle podcast. We'll see you next time. This is an HEC Media Podcast.